Good morning again. We are going to be in the book of Job this morning. Uh, We're actually going to be here for the next six weeks uh, as we begin a study through Job, a study we're calling uh, A Perspective on Suffering. Um, Job is one of those uh, books that all of us know about, uh, meaning that all of us have heard stories about it or read part, if not all of it, Um, but still one of those books that plagues us because it, it invites a question that is a difficult question. Uh, Actually, it centers on a question that's a difficult question. As we talk about the goodness of God and the justice of God and man's relation or reaction to the way that God operates in the world, God's system of justice. Uh, Job is one of those books that uh, a lot of people who aren't believers and aren't followers of Jesus will point to as a problem with the Christian faith, as a problem with Scripture in general seeing what God allows to happen to Job and not explaining it in a better way. Uh, Let me first say kind of as an outset as we go into the book of Job, if you go into the book of Job looking for all of these specific answers as to why things happen the way that they happen, why bad things happen to good people, why good things happen to bad people, and all of those big, huge questions that we ask in our time, and you want like Sub point one, sub point A, point, point B, point two, definition of why all of these things take place the way they do, you're going to be disappointed with the book of Job. Because that's not what the book of Job tries to do. That's not what God is attempting to do in this passage. But rather illustrate a deeper truth about human suffering and God's response to that. And so again, we're going to dive in for the next six weeks as we look at Job his perspective on suffering and the way that it applies into our lives. When I was a young child, probably four or five years old, my family and I were traveling somewhere. I can't remember where it was. I think it might have been Six Flags here uh, in in the DFW area. And uh, we stopped at a um, rest area, you know, on the side of I-20 somewhere. Uh, We were traveling in a big group. I don't think it was just us. I think it might have been an extended family. The memories are fuzzy. Uh, and I remember pulling over to eat sandwiches that we had packed. Uh, we weren't the wealthiest, and so when my family, when we traveled together on a big trip like that, uh, we didn't stop at McDonald's back then. We, we pulled over and enjoyed, anybody else do that? I uh, enjoyed a sandwich, a bag lunch, uh, and with some Cokes that we had bought. And maybe we actually went to a Coke machine there at the, uh, at the rest stop and bought one. And I remember us walking back, and I dropped the Coke can, and I had flip-flops on, either that or I didn't have any shoes on, dropped it right on my big toe. And that's like the only thing, I was so young, that's really the only thing I remember about that trip. Because at that point in my life, that was the most painful experience that I had ever been through. Maybe you can remember painful events like that when you were a kid, where you first time ever experienced real physical pain. My understanding of pain has developed over my life, just like I'm sure yours has as well. Whether it was little pains like that one as a child or maybe emotional pains growing up by being rejected by a friend or someone that you had a crush on. Maybe it was other physical pain when you begin to get older, and I remember this one intensely as well, uh, being in track practice. I know I don't look like a track athlete, and that's why track practice was so excruciating for me. Uh, our, our football coach believed that it was off-season for football, so everybody had to do it. Um, when I was running with the rest of the sprinters, the people who actually deserved to be on a track and field team, I remember that pain being rather intense. But again, pain develops as we mature 
There was a time in my life, 2005 and 2006, where my family lost three grandparents and one uncle in less than a two years' time. I lost a brother-in-law several years later. I have uh, had illnesses of various kinds as an adult that have been much more painful than what I, you know, things that I went through as a child. And I'm sure many of you have been through things even more painful than that. Been through emotional pain, like moving from one location to another and saying goodbye to a group of friends and a group of people that you cared about. And so if I were to ask you in all of your life and all of the events that you have experienced What is the worst pain that you've ever gone through? The kind that, as the cliche would put it, that you would never wish even on your worst enemy. The worst physical pain that you've ever been through. Maybe you've had something broken, or maybe you've been through a serious illness that left you down and out for months on end. What about emotional pain, whether it's the loss of someone that you cared about or a broken relationship? Or maybe a spiritual pain of, of trying to discern why, like Job must have been, why things are happening the way that they're happening in this distance that some people talk about that they feel between themselves and God. What's the worst kind of pain, a pain that you wouldn't wish on even your worst enemy that you've ever experienced? You know that in those times and those experiences, we are tempted, and sometimes we do, we are tempted to ask the question, is God really good? Yes, he is. Thank you for that. But we are certainly tempted to ask that question. God is good. But we run from this question, don't we? Sometimes when it comes up, and maybe that's one of the reasons why we have such difficulty with the book of Job and we want to run away from it, much like we do with the book of Revelation in the New Testament. We run from this question because maybe deep down we're afraid that the answer isn't what we want to hear. Maybe we might presume as we suffer through various consequences and see other people that we love dearly suffer through various illnesses and problems. Maybe we wonder, maybe there's this voice and we try to squelch it with a scripture and with truth, but maybe there's this still human fleshly voice within us that says maybe God really isn't that good. Or maybe God really isn't in control like you think that he would. And so we run from that question because we don't even want to entertain that idea. And we block ourselves off from that conversation because we don't want to allow ourselves to go there because we're afraid of where it might end up. But here's why we shouldn't run from that question. First of all, difficult questions only become more difficult when you ignore them. The further you separate yourself from that conversation, the harder that conversation gets to be, much like any conversation that we need to have in life. Conversations that we need to have in relationships over conflict, the longer we put them off, the harder they become. The same way with suffering in the world, the longer we delay that question that is gnawing in our hearts, the harder it is for that question to ever get answered. And the answer isn't something that we need to fear. The answer isn't something that we need to be worried about. But Scripture tells us quite plainly, as we will see here in a moment, that God is in control of everything without the sh- beyond the shadow of a doubt, and that God is good. God is good even when the world he created isn't. And as we start the book of Job, it is important for us to start with the understanding that God is good. 
must understand that the Hebrew authors came to this book and wrote the truth about Job's story with that really never being a question for them. Uh, This is kind of a 21st century question. Is God really good? Is the person who controls the universe really have our best interest in mind? It's something we ask more now than I would think probably any other generation ever has in the history of the earth. But I believe that when the author sat down to write this book, when he told Job's story, that that question was something he never even really thought about. That he never even really entertained. Is God good? Of course God is good. Because God is good even when the world isn't. So this morning we're going to be focusing on Job chapter 2 verses 7 through 10. But I want to summarize what happens up until that point. Many of you know the prologue of the book of Job. You know that Job was a wealthy man, according to chapter 1, that he had seven sons and three daughters, ten being a number of completion in Hebrew. Likewise, he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So many servants that they decided not to even number them. He was the greatest man in the East, the scripture says. All of this is seen as a gift from God by Job and by the author. He was wealthy beyond imagination. He would be much like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates today, a number in the bank that we couldn't even really wrap our minds around. Job was that wealthy by having this kind of livestock and this kind of wealth. And Job was also righteous. It tells the story of Job when his family would, have, uh, would, would observe the feast that he would always and continually give sacrifices to God on behalf of himself and on behalf of his children just in case they had sinned against God. But more so than that, God considers Job noteworthy as a noteworthy example of righteousness. As we see in the scene that we're, I'm about to talk about between God and Satan, God holds Job up as an example of what righteousness looks like uh, in, in humanity, saying that Job is a righteous man. Look at this man, God tells Satan. And that brings us to that interchange. Again, this is one of the more difficult spots to understand about the book of Job as God is seen having a committee meeting, basically, if we want to put it in Baptist terminology, that he is holding a meeting And the heavenly hosts are coming, and and who knows what they're talking about. But we know that one member of the heavenly host shows up. And in Job, he is called the, it actually comes with the definite article, he's called the Satan. Which in Hebrew means the accuser, the adversary, the opposer, or the opponent. But also whom we might know as actually the personified devil, Satan. Now, again, I think we're missing the point if we take this book to be a description of how God and Satan communicate. I don't think that's the point. I don't think we need to get bogged down in this conversation because a lot of times the questions that come up here is, well, why is Satan in heaven anyway? And why is he having this conversation with God? Is he equal with the rest of the angels? And all of these different things that we ask. If that had been important, the book of Job would have explained that. This is not the important thing, but rather it is to show that Satan's job in the world is to do exactly what he is doing, to accuse mankind of sin, to accuse mankind of wrongdoing, to cast doubt on the goodness of man and on the goodness of God, which Satan, I think, does roundabout through Job's friends later in the book. 
they come to an agreement. Because Satan comes to God saying, or God actually starts it by saying, look at Job, look at this righteous man. And Satan's response is essentially, Job only obeys you because you bless him and protect him. But if you reach out and touch everything that he has, if you remove the hedge that is around him, then he will curse you to your face. Job chapter 1 verse 10 says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the lands. I read that to point out the fact that all of this that Job has, all of the goodness that he has experienced and is experiencing is a gift from God, a good gift from God. Not only that, but the absence of Satan's work in his life is a gift from God. This might be where we get the idea of hedge of protection, that Job has a hedge around him that keeps him protected from the things that Satan is trying to do. So God says, okay, to Satan, but don't touch him. That's the one caveat that God gives Satan, and so Satan goes and wreaks havoc. All of Job's wealth, all of his servants, save the few that come back to tell the story, are destroyed. Nothing survives except those few men who tell the tale. And then, most heartbreakingly, and probably the worst of all for Job, all ten of his children are together, and I would think their families as well, together, having fun, partying together, having a feast together, and then the house falls in and they are all killed. And in Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, we see Job's response. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let me read verse 20 again. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Be honest. If you were reading that book for the first time, would you have seen that coming? You might have seen the act of grief, tearing his clothes, shaving his head. That's what happened in the ancient world when someone was grieving, falling on their face. But then, that last word in that verse, he worshipped God. He worshipped God in this circumstance. Job goes on to say a very famous line, one that a modern praise song is set to, that God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, God is just in taking that which he alone has given. Everything that Job has is from God. And so Job recognizes when all of this has been taken away that God alone, the only person that has given me any of these good gifts, he, has, he is just in taking it back if that's what he wills. And you would think that that would be enough. That that should be the end of the story, the end of Job's suffering. But the story continues in chapter 2. As Satan comes back to God, 
God once again asks Satan to examine Job to see how good of a servant he is. And Satan pushes it one step further and say, that's fine, but what about his body? What about his flesh? You haven't allowed me to touch it. You haven't allowed me to afflict him. Again, if you allow me to do this, if he doesn't have his health, he will surely curse you to your face. So God allows him to afflict Job. To afflict him with painful sores all over his body with the one, again, caveat, you cannot kill him. And this is where we pick up in Job chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. I'm going to stop there. This, this, perhaps more than any other verse in the prologue here, sets in stark picture what Job's suffering must have been like. His pain was so bad, and not only so bad, but just so annoying. You know when you have pain that is both scratchy and itchy, but also deeply painful, something that you can't get your mind off of, and the moments kind of just go by so incredibly slowly as you deal with this pain. Job finds a piece of broken pottery so that he can scratch and try to give relief, but no relief comes. It only makes it worse. This is physical suffering beyond what I can imagine. Perhaps some of you have been through serious illnesses where you can, you can understand what it's like to go through pain every moment of every day for months on end. Job is in that position, but he's in that position while he sits in ashes, while he is still mourning the loss of his wealth and more importantly, the loss of his children. Ashes were symbolic for mourning in the Old Testament. And so Job, in physical pain and spiritual, emotional pain beyond what most people can imagine, this is where Job is. Back to verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women should speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. To contemporize it, if it's as if Job's home and all of his belongings burned to the ground and he had no insurance for any of it. All of his children die in the fire. He and his wife escape, but in the escape, he is badly burned and left in agony. Still, Job refused to curse God. Despite his wife's words. Now, one quick break. Uh, this is often a point of, of jest in the book of Job that uh, we, we talk about how Job had everything taken away from him except his wife who was there to offer this wonderful word of encouragement. Uh, as she said to Job to curse God and die. But perhaps we're missing the point. I understand that the joke and that I've joked about it as well. But perhaps we're missing the point when we read it that way. What if Job's wife loved him dearly? And saw him in such incredible pain that her response was, this has to stop. Curse God and die and end it. Again, to get real for a moment, maybe you have sat in, in, in a hospital room or on the bedside of someone that you love dearly 
and saw them in pain afforded by our wonderful medical care today that does many things but sometimes keeps us along to the point where it is incredibly painful. Maybe you have sat there and you have said to yourself, just go home now. Maybe that's what his wife was coming from. Maybe that's where her true motivations laid. Maybe not. Maybe she really was just a pain. But either way, it shows Job's painful situation. And even in this situation, again, Job refuses to curse God. Because hearkening back to the first thing that he said in chapter 1, where he said, blessed be the name of the Lord, God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Now he says to his wife, shall we receive good from God and not also evil? Should we take all of the good gifts that God has given us and then when things get bad, completely turn our back on him? That's basically the question that Job is offering. Again, this man, while he is experiencing incredible pain, had experienced the exact opposite, the polar opposite. He had experienced immense blessing from God. And what he is saying to his wife is, we enjoyed those things. We enjoyed the goodness of God, the gift of God. Should we really enjoy all of that? And in the moment when true suffering arrives, turn our back on this God who blessed us. Because again, if we come to this book and if we come to this story assuming that God is good and not allowing Satan to put that question in our mind, is God really good? It's the question that he's been trying to put in humanity's mind from day one. When he first approached Adam and Eve in the garden and he tried to convince them that God was hiding something from them. And that what God called evil wasn't really evil but was good if they would just reach out their hand and take it. That that fruit that God said to stay away from was really pleasing to the eyes and good for food and good for knowledge. Satan has been doing it all along and we continue to do it even today where we take what God has called evil and we call it good. We take what God calls good and we call it too hard and too difficult and therefore evil. We try to, from the very beginning of a human race, we try to take it upon ourselves to define what is good and evil instead of allowing God to do that which he has been wanting to do from the very beginning. Don't allow that to come into your mind. But rather, realize that God is good even when the world he created isn't. Here is the truth. None of what happened to Job changed what we know to be true about God. None of it changed it. Just like any true suffering and any true pain today that you or someone that you love or care about goes through, none of that changes who God really is. We will dive into getting our mind around why it happens and what we do when it happens in the next several weeks, but we must start here. No matter what happens to Job in this passage or moving forward, it does not change anything about the character of God. Because here's some things we know to be true. You know, something that I say often is when we find something that we don't know, let's talk about what we do know. And so let's talk about what we do know about God for a moment when we encounter this mysterious situation in the book of Job. What do we know about God? We know that God created literally everything that exists in moments and days simply by speaking it into existence out of nothing. 
you think you're imaginative or creative, imagine having a completely blank slate and thinking of an aardvark. Uh, Imagine thinking of all of the wonderful things that God does in creation, all of the beautiful stars, the world, the cosmos, the intricacy of the atom within the the human being and the human body. All of that was created by God in mere instants, in mere moments and days. Even the beauty of some things that we don't even understand fully, like math and science and music, things that speak to us, all of this was created by a good God. What else do we know about God? We know that God created man and woman in his own image, giving us the ability to imagine, to be creative, to have that creative spirit where we can think about things that don't yet exist and imagine what they might be like and then create them with God's creative power and with God's creative help. Giving us the ability to choose to serve him or not to serve him, to not be some kind of automaton or robot that is made to do what God wants us to do, but whether having that free choice to choose to follow him or to go our own way. And hand in hand with that power to choose, God gives us the ability to love. Think about that for a moment. The love that you experienced the hands of your parents growing up, even if you had a difficult childhood or absent parents, people that came into your life and served in that position, that is a gift from God. The friends that you have had or that you currently have that you talk to when things get difficult, when you need someone to lean on, that is a gift from God. Brothers and sisters, that while you might not see each other for years at a time, when you come back together, it's like nothing ever changed. And someone that you can call from thousands of miles away to lean on and to ask them to pray for you or to think about you, to remember you, that is a gift from God. The love that you experience between spouses, between best friends, The love where you know what each other is thinking, where you experience moments that nobody on this else, nobody else on this planet is privy to. That kind of love is a gift from a good God. Can I get an amen on that one? It is a gift from a good God. God gave us those gifts. And what about the world-changing love? At least I'm experiencing it, and I talk about it all the time, so I'm sure you get tired of it. Over the last five years, the world-changing love of seeing a child literally made in your own image and loving it unlike you've loved anything before, not more than, but just in a different way, that is a gift from God. And all of that is amazing. All of that we know to be true from Scripture and from our own experience. And so, as Job would say, how dare we take all of that goodness from God and revel in it and the moment that things get tough, turn our back on him and curse him. For for Job, at least in chapters 1 and 2, God is good, even when the world he created isn't. I stopped short of the best thing, though. Because here's the truth about us as a human race and God's interaction with us. All of those good things, we were willing to give them back. 
for our own desire, to choose to go our own way. We call that sin. To say, I don't want God's way, I want my way. Again, we've been doing it from the dawn of time with Adam and Eve. And even when we gave all of those good gifts back, God himself gave himself in the form of a man named Jesus Christ to be crucified for our redemption so that we would once again be made right. He gave us more than we could ever imagine. And even when we turn our back and spurn those gifts, he gave himself to us when all of that wasn't enough. There is no question, if you read the Bible in context, if you keep reading to the New Testament, if you keep reading on through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see what Jesus did for our sake and the way that Paul explains it in his epistles, and then you read the glorious coming day that will sometime happen in the future in the book of Revelation where God will set everything right and will dwell with us for eternity. We cannot read that and then with one book in the book of the Bible decide to cast all of God's goodness into question because of one bad thing that happened to one man. And so do I run away from the book of Job? No. I see it as a part of God's deep story. A part of God's story that we need to talk about more often. Because what we need to realize is that when we encounter pain, it's not as if that pain doesn't matter. It's not as if we don't need to ask the difficult questions. But it's even in the midst of dealing with the pain, we must remember that God is good even when his world isn't. Because the world's evil, the world's evil can never cancel out God's goodness. It's something we need to hear in our day and age. One of the terrible things about modern technology is that we can never get away from it. We talk about this a lot. I mention it a lot. Well, on my iPad this morning, I have an Associated Press app. Um, and it shot up something that happened in Mississippi where eight people have died this morning, including a sheriff's deputy. And we get evil like that all of the time, don't we? We hear about it close to home and all around the world. What we need to hear and what the message of the book of Job, one thing that the book of Job tells us today is no matter how evil the world gets, it does not change the fact that God is good. And all of the evil in the world can never measure up to the goodness of the God who created it. Nothing, no evil in this world can outshine the goodness of God, the God who gave us life and love and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. So, the sermon really was as simple as it sounded in the beginning. Is God good, really? Yes, he is. Absolutely no matter how evil the world gets. So this morning, during our time of invitation, I invite you to consider the goodness of God in the midst of your present pain. Again, this is not to minimize your pain. This is not to minimize any human suffering. If Job does anything, the book, it puts a big magnifying glass on human pain. It doesn't run away from it. But it is to say that even in the midst of incredible pain, God is still God and is still good. And that should never be in question for those of us who have experienced his goodness, no matter what happens.
you need to pray about anything along these lines or anything completely outside of these lines, I'm down here to do that with you this morning, and I'll be around after the service as well. But again, let's stand together, and during our time of invitation, I invite you just to dwell and reflect, meditate on the goodness of God, even if you're in the midst of difficult situations. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And God, we thank you for being here with us today. God, I pray now that you would enter into the lives and minds and hearts of everyone gathered here this morning. God, I know that we're all in, in experiencing through our stories different levels of pain. And we know that no human story comes without pain. And Lord, I pray this morning that through your Holy Spirit, God, that there would be someone here in the midst of pain, God, that you would bring comfort to and peace that surpasses understanding. God, I pray that in the midst of pain and suffering, God, that you would bring to our mind the goodness of what you have done, of what you have given, and allow us to celebrate that even while we still mourn the pain. God, we thank you for your goodness always winning in the end and always being bigger than any negative thing that this world has to throw at us. God, we close this prayer in the way that your servant Job did. God, you give and you take. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.